it's really one of the most brilliant things to see in the work. A teacher who's leaned back with her arms crossed, right? Who's seen all this before, because she has. Right. I mean, understand, right. you know, we, we, we look at them like, oh, they're the recalcitrant, the entrenched. The, but the truth of the matter is all these things they have, if you talk longer than a hot minute, you've seen and heard all of this before. Yeah. Um, and there's yeah. no reason to think that your way is going to be any different than all the other experiences that they've had before. Yep. But we turn that on its ear because we pull them into the work. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton, and that was the voice of Derek Mitchell, the CEO of Partners in School Innovation. In this episode, Stacey Callier interviews him about what he's learned about how to help schools get better at giving every kid what they need to thrive and about why this work matters so much to him. If you work in a school, or if you work with schools, or if you just want the world to be a kinder, more just place for all of us, this episode is for you. With that, I'm going to get out of the way and let Stacy take it from here. Derek Mitchell is one of my favorite leaders and provocateurs. Every time I have been in a room with him, there's this mic drop moment where he flips some assumption on its head or asks the question that gets everyone to think differently and more expansively. Derek is the CEO for Partners in School Innovation, an organization that has spent the last 30 years developing, refining, and expanding an improvement science approach to whole school transformation. They have worked with hundreds of public schools in the most challenged urban centers, from the Bay Area to the Mississippi Delta, and have demonstrated time and again that even the most struggling schools can dramatically shift outcomes for students if they're supported and resourced to do so. Their work and their approach is documented in a fabulous book called Change Agents, written by Justin Cohen, that came out last year. Our whole team at High Tech High is reading it together right now. Some of us, like me, for the second time, big fan. Um, it's one of the best illustrations of what improvement looks and feels like when it's truly collaborative and human-centered. And it functions like a guidebook, pointing out all the places we as educators might get tripped up in the change process and how we can do better. So. Derek, thank you so much for being here to share your wisdom with us. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. I hear you majored in writing at Pomona. As an English and physics major myself, that makes my heart sore. Um, and you also wrote the introduction to Change Agents. Mm -hmm. And in that, you share the story of how your own equity journey began in a middle school on Chicago's West Side. Can you share the story of the science fair so we can just get grounded in who you are and what drives you in this work? Sure, but uh, only if you give me permission to get emotional because- Yes, always. Like most kids growing up in Chicago's Southwest side, uh, I was being educated in a school that was severely under-resourced. And as a child, I didn't know that until I had an opportunity to do a science fair in another school on the north side of the city. And so I guess it starts with me being a little bit of a weird, precocious kid in that I was the kind of kid who read the encyclopedia. I felt like I wanted to be a scientist as a kid. And somewhere along the way, I read somewhere that cockroaches would be the mo only thing surviving if we had nuclear war. And I thought about that and they were, they were pretty plentiful in my community. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if that's really true. And so, uh, like a true scientist, I started this series of, of experiments to determine just what roaches could, you know, survive. <laughs> um, and I documented everything, you know, I, I had a little pamphlet and a booklet and, you know, kept time and the whole bit. <laughs> and a whole series of from, you know, uh, drowning them in water to freezing them in the freezers to you know, just <laughs> a, a long list of, of uh, tortures, trying to figure out exactly how resilient these creatures were. And I got a bug in my ear one moment to do a presentation for my school, my classroom on just the survivability of, of cockroaches, which might surprise you, went over very well. <laughs> Yeah, I had a poster. I had, you know, uh, cockroaches glued to the poster. I cut and pasted pictures of the dermis in different parts and the whole bit. And it was really kind of a fun and fascinating sort of project. And the principal who had heard about it from my teacher thought, huh, this guy's got a, a fun project here. Maybe we should submit it for some of the citywide science fairs. And so she did. 
And so some Saturday, a couple months later, I found myself taking a bus, a train and another bus with my mom to a whole nother part of the city in Chicago, a part I'd never been to before. And as we traveled, I noticed some pretty tremendous changes in the communities from my neighborhood, which was essentially concrete and tarmac everywhere to, you know, really hills and green grass and trees and houses with gardens and a whole bit. And I'm thinking to myself, is this Chicago? And and of course, it was a long trip, too. So I'm, you know, how big is this city? Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. actually travel for almost two hours and, and still be in it. <laughs> and so finally, we get to this school, which is on Chicago's far north side, and it looked like a castle. It was this magnificent, brilliant, beautiful building surrounded by rolling hills of green grass and playing fields. Uh, it even had a garden up front. And and for that time, it was ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. You know, as and so I'm blown away carrying the poster and, you know, looking at this place and watching as kids and their parents are collecting all of their gear and moving it into this school. And I start to think, wow, some of the ex- examples from the science fair are going to be pretty amazing. And so we go inside and they direct us to the gym room, um, which... Uh, where we all got our knowledge about where we're going to be in the building because they had the science fair in the science wing. And uh, right off the bat, a science wing, you know, uh, Uh my school didn't even have science. So that's part of why my exhibit was so surprising. We were really just math Mm -hmm. and English and social studies uh, at my school. Mm -hmm. Uh, My whole science thing was just a bug that I had. We had no instruction in science at that time. Um, but this school had a science wing. Hmm. And so when we made it to the classroom where we were going to do our work, I observed for the first time what a really well-provisioned science classroom looked like. They had cabinets with all kinds of chemicals and beakers. They had running water in the classrooms and different bins, you know, situated around the room. They also had burners, fire. In the actual classroom, you could I could have done my experiments, not in my mom's kitchen, but literally. <laughs> Which she would have loved. <laughs> oh, no, don't, don't let get on that. Um, as a side story, I, I had forgotten I had captured a bunch of cockroaches and put them in a Tupperware container and froze them and forgot and left them there. And my mom, of course, looking to see what she's going to make for dinner, you know, discovered them. And that was the end of my, my experiments happening at home. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I'm observing this incredible space and thinking to myself, wow, what is it that makes it so valuable mm-hmm. for these kids mm-hmm. to have all this stuff compared to the place where I was coming from? And so then it hit me while I'm put, putting my poster up and I'm looking around at all the other kids who have everything from volcanoes to one kid had had a helium balloon, the shape of the, of the space shuttle. I mean, just tons of kind of amazing stuff. It occurred to me that we were the only black people in the room. Mm-hmm. And so I asked my mom, I said, mom, did you see any other black people on the way up here? She was like, no, I don't think so. And this was my first experience with not just a lot of white people, but a lot of different white people. I mean, hair colors, eye colors, shapes and sizes, skin tones, even inflections in their in how they are speaking English and different accents from different places where their families are from. And I was kind of uh, overwhelmed by it all. Uh, and my mom, you know, saw me and she said, baby, calm down, settle it. You know, you're here to teach these people about cockroaches, you know, get your head in the game. So we did our thing and got an honorable mention and... And wh- while I was worried that kids wouldn't, you know, dig my my project, they actually really enjoyed my project. A lot of these kids had never seen roaches before, which is an <laughs> amazing thing to me. And I wish I had had known enough about the SAS fair to know that I could have actually brought living roaches because some kid brought ant farms and, and spiders that were alive. I was like, man, I could have figured out some way to bring, you know, living <laughs> approaches to this thing, which would have probably not gone over as well <laughs> to the principal of that school that we were in. But I, I also had a moment where I felt an intense, I guess shame would be the, the best way to think about it, that... You know, I'm looking around at all these kids and they're super happy and they're so excited about what they're working. Some of them were wearing lab coats with their school's names on them. And I felt for a moment that, you know, I was being set up, mm-hmm. that my principal thought that she would teach me a lesson 
and showed me what real science was like. And my mom talked me out of that. She's like, no, I mean, your principal was really trying to look out for you and give you a chance to show your stuff. But it hit me in my heart that there were incredible differences in just what kids have when they show up to school every day. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and I thought about the building that we were in and I'm looking around and I'm thinking to myself, somebody built this school this way. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody decided that this neighborhood and this school should have these kinds of resources. And those same somebody's probably decided the same thing about our school. Mm -hmm. And what was it beyond the fact that, you know, race, which popped right into my head, kid, was the difference between us. And so I was pretty upset when I when I left that place, even though I got my honorable mention. And yes, even back then, everybody got some kind of trophy or, or certificate. You know, you know, we we give the, we give the millennials a lot of crap about this. But yeah, we were this is all. This is yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I took my honorable mention certificate back to the school, and the principal was super excited and happy, and she saw that I was not feeling that excited about it. And she asked me about it. And before I could even start explaining, I found myself in tears, just, mm. you know, crying about it all. And, uh, and she, you know, like a really great principal, she sat down next to me and grabbed some tissues and listened as I recanted the whole kind of experience. Um, and then I just, I really kind of accusatorily just started asking her, why is this this way? I mean, you know, and she said something that I've, I've stuck with me. Since then, she says, Derek, I don't really know why things are the way they are, but uh, but maybe you will be the one to change it. Hmm. Right now, yeah. you got to class. So <laughs> wipe your tears and get back up to your classroom. <laughs> uh, and so I've pretty much been in that class since then, learning about how schools are organized, you know, what decisions go into where they're built and how they're built and who enrolls in them and what resources they have and how all that changes. And I learned a lot about that particular school, Robert Emmett, and the fact that it was a Jewish neighborhood before it was a black neighborhood, you know, and it was an Italian neighborhood before it was a Jewish neighborhood, you know, and so uh, it's just, you know, it was one of the schools built in the big rush with immigration coming from Europe at the turn of the 19th century. And it's been populated by, you know, different peoples over time, but it was built at a time when getting them built, you know, fast enough to accommodate the, the incoming immigrant groups was a priority at the time. But I've been studying this question of uh, what really came down to educational equity before we even had the language. And it's a truism that even today, you know, we set kids up for failure. You know, even California at a point with the Williams decision decided that there should be a floor below which no school should be. And we have yet to even resource that floor. I mean, mm -hmm. think about that. Mm -hmm. um, and that took, you know, years of, 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 you know, of litigation for that to happen. And we're still not actually producing the kind of education environment that we would want our, all our kids to be in, in every place where we expect kids to go to school. So, so get this, we're literally requiring children to go to public schools that we know are not provisioned well enough for them to learn and grow. Uh, yet we, you know, we hire teachers to teach there and leaders to lead there and we hold them all accountable for getting the same kind of outcomes with clearly a, a lesser set of resources. That's kind of the story. And it's not accidental, right, that kids who are poor and kids of color and kids who speak something other than English or are in schools where they're being resourced less well. Mm -hmm. Motivated me my whole career, that one instance. I wish I could meet that principal. Yeah, Carol Reardon was her name. She was a, a brilliant, wonderful woman. Um, sh uh, petite, bright-eyed, and uh, and she she did other things for me too. I, uh, you know, I was one of these kids who tested well, um, and so she immediately figured out that I needed to be more challenged, um, and started signing me up for all kinds of different things. I learned photography at a photo studio up the street. Um, I learned to play the guitar. I started the school newspaper. She did for me what we want should do for every child, which is indulge their interests. Uh, yeah. Whatever they are, right. you know. Even if they're about cockroaches. Even if they're about cockroaches, right. You just <laughs> indulge their interests yeah. and you leverage that to, to, to excite them with learning. Yeah, yeah. Then we'll position most kids for much better outcomes. Uh, they'll at least yeah. be able to, to achieve their dreams, whatever those are, right? Yeah. 
in all that you shared, I mean, there's many things that strike me. You, you did something right then that the book does as well throughout that I just loved because you, in the book, there are these deep dives as Justin's telling these stories about the schools and communities in which y'all are working. And he's going explicitly into the histories Mm -hmm. and the culture of those places as a way of saying like, we cannot do this work and have it be transformational if we don't know the histories and the cultures of the people who we're working with. So even just in your story, the fact that you knew the history of that school and could kind of trace it back and and how the evolution of it happened, Mm That's so meaningful. And that's one of the things that I really appreciated about the book. Thank you. And I also, I love her push of like, maybe you're going to be the one who's going to figure this out. You've devoted your whole life to educational equity. Like that's been your focus. Mm -hmm. And in in the introduction, um, I have to quote you because you write this so beautifully. You talk about how one of your biggest learnings is, I quote, implementing continuous improvement methods without a clear focus on equity simply supercharges and codifies opportunity gaps. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about where you've seen most change efforts, especially those using improvement go awry? Yeah, that comment is is about a a complex set of realizations about accountability systems specifically. And so Mm -hmm. I'll out myself as a reformed accountability guy. (laughs) Yeah, it was the work, my work in graduate school. It was the work I did when I first started in Oakland, building these data systems and accountability infrastructures that were meant to empower decision makers with data and then, quote unquote, hold folks accountable to outcomes. But without a real understanding of how things got the way they are mm-hmm. or a deeper appreciation for the assets that are inherent in every community, a blanket accountability model is inherently um, essentially colonial, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's basically somebody somewhere else telling you what you should value and hold you accountable to what they value, right? That's, I mean, that, you know, we may as well be the Catholic church, you know, in, in, in uh, South America. So I'm, I say that I'm reformed and that I've driven these systems in many different environments where I've, I've led. And we, in every case, we come to two really important uh, lessons, which I, I think I was stubborn because I wasn't able to to take these lessons in until after the third or fourth time running headlong into it. <laughs> the first is that personal responsibility and accountability are not the same thing. What we really want people to have is a personal responsibility for for kids being successful, right? And if you have that, you will problem solve. You will jog left when left works and right when right works you you know you you'll overcome hurdles you will argue persuasively for resources you'll you'll do the things um that are going to make a robust difference mm-hmm. without that in the presence of really just a set of rules and a set of measures that you're responsible for producing when your students are actually you know coming to you further behind than anyone has actually measured you run up against this, this understanding that no matter how hard you press or how much you work to try to meet these, you know, externally uh, mandated goals, you'll fail. And that failure is then attributable to you and not to the systems that have created this divergent set of outcomes and resources, right? And so for me, it comes down to the lessons we've learned when schools have been able to drive outcomes in this way, and they've been non-sustainable. And in, in some cases, they've been they've been implemented by gaming the system, you know, the sort of bubble kid kind of strategies, and not a reflective of robust, coherent, and powerful learning taking place. You know, they're basically more rigidity and uh, and more managing of behavior, um, which is part of the story, but not really what our schools are for, right? And so. I wish I knew what I know now. I know I know that's something everybody says at some point yeah. in their life. <laughs> um, uh, because uh, what our approach at, at Partners has led us to is a, is a deeper appreciation and commitment to being in robust community mm-hmm. with folks um, when we're there to support them. So it's not, you know, it, we may even come at them from a perspective of, you know, their superintendent is aligning resources to help them because they're furthest from success. But that's not the conversation we have when we're in the room with them because that by design uh, kind of owns all of the problems 
you know, um, that have created this related structure without a discussion about them. We instead go into these conversations and ask them, you know, what is it they need to get better than normal outcomes? And how can we help them put those things in place, right? Yeah. So it's a much more robust, much more authentic, much more relationship-oriented, relationship and community-appreciated approach to transformation. And it's it's important and powerful because without it, when you run into these walls, you know, I remember having this conversation with uh, with Tony Bright. You know, I, I loved learning to improve. It's a brilliant and wonderful book. Um, and I asked him, you know, what what happens when you present this to a classroom and the teachers just say no? You know, they're like, nope, not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Grade level, yeah. like, nope, that's not what we're going to do. <laughs> you know, there's, there's nothing in the book about what you do. Mm-hmm. And that's what you would run into without a r- robust understanding of the community you're trying to serve and and some transparent conversation about the assets that are already there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question isn't then about let's implement this structure in this repetitious and, and, and sort of uh, uh, stayed way. Instead, it's let's work together on what we know is going to matter to get outcomes for kids and let's learn our way forward. Um, two very different conversations. Yeah. I mean, I'll say from reading the book, one of the things that first struck me there's a whole chapter just about relationships. Mm-hmm. And we talk all the time about like, relationships are so important. They really matter. Sense of belonging, all that stuff. And that's all true. But I appreciate how in the book and what you just said right now, it really makes the point that like, it's not just because we all need to feel like we belong. It's because <laughs> we're doing hard work. And it's hard to do that hard work alone. And mm-hmm. so you have to build your band to be able to do that work together because it's scary and it takes community to do scary things. That's right. And so, and find your crew. Yeah. You got to build your crew. It's, it really is the only way. Why do you think so in so many chapters features food? Right. Yes. Right. There's food all through the book. Yeah. And and frankly, when I first got the partners and this was was a part of partners before I even got there, um, I kept seeing these expenses for food. I'm like, what, what are, <laughs> are, are we a food bank? I mean, what is going on with all these all these meals? And, um, and it wasn't until I, you know, my, our program lead kind of walked me through how it is we build relationship and um, and the way that uh, the powerful way that food plays in all the communities where we currently serve in the Latinx yeah. community in the, in the Black community, food is a is really translates into love mm-hmm. and regard. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you know, o- owning the fact that many of our teachers don't even have time for a robust lunch right. in the confines of a given day. Yep. Our folks show up with food. Right. You know, and it draws people, yeah. you know, to the conversation. And so that's all about the fact that you need the community to produce outsized mm-hmm. outcomes for the community. Mm-hmm. That's not something an individual can do in any kind of sustainable way. Yeah. Our tropes in education, we love the superhero individual, you know, the, yes, we do. the coming to Jesus principle, mm-hmm. right? The Superman teacher, Jaime Escalante, and the list goes on and on. And these are wonderful, amazing people. But what makes lasting sustainable change is a Jaime Escalante community with others. Right, a crew. Right, yeah. a crew. And so we were serious about that in the book, making sure that folks recognize that if they try to do this by themselves, they'll get burned out and they won't be able to sustain the effort, even if they're able to get great results, let alone the fact that they'll leave yeah. and everything will go right back to the way it was before. But what we've learned is, is if you work in a robust, powerful community and you structure opportunities for that community to get quick wins and sort of produce a sense of efficacy, or collective e- efficacy among them, mm-hmm. then they will never go back to the way they worked before. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, they're going to respond to the right work like a cool breeze on a hot day. And so <laughs> it's really one of the most brilliant things to see in the work. A teacher who's leaned back with her arms crossed, right? Who's seen all this before, because she has. Right. I mean, understand, right. you know, we, we, we look at them like, oh, they're the recalcitrant, the entrenched. The, but the truth of the matter is all of these things they have, if you talk longer than a hot minute, You've seen and heard all of this before. Yeah. Um, and there's yeah. no reason to think that your way is going to be any different than all the other experiences that they've had before. Yep. But we turn that on its ear because we pull them into the work. Yep. So it's not our way, it's your way. I love that. Right. You have to for. So what's going to work now for you? 
Right. I love that too, because I always like to think of those with the arms crossed and in the back of the room, it's like, those are the rationally resistant. They have very good reasons <laughs> for feeling the way that they do, especially if they've been in schools for any amount of time. Absolutely. And they're also your greatest allies if you can get them on your side. Just think of standards. How many versions of standards have teachers seen since the 1990s? I mean, yep. you know, so if you've taught for, for 30 years, you've been in some kind of standards, you know, way of working at least four or five times in that time. And the list goes on and on from curricula to assessments to strategies, uh, whole child. And all these are pieces uh, that teachers who've been teaching for a while have seen and heard and, and they know what happens. Mm-hmm. We've played this movie before them before. Yep. And so they are rationally resistant and we can't treat them as if they're not. And so we have to own the fact that we've started a bunch of things that we never followed up on. <laughs> that we've initiated resources on things that we couldn't sustain Mm -hmm. and to explain how this work is going to be different in order to really break through that resistance. Yeah. I mean, I love in that same intro, you talk about partners approach as one of like investing in people. and, And you talk a lot about the importance of like, as you just were like, don't just layer stuff on top of each other, like learn about the existing structure, learn about the existing culture. How can you work within that to get change efforts going? Can you say a little bit more about like, what does that pouring in and working within existing structures look like? And if you have an example, that's great. Part of why that way of working is so important is because so much of our policy advocacy environment has been against this, you know, replace half the teachers with cheaper, younger versions of the ones who are there now. And somehow that's going to lead to outsized outcomes for kids. And they show up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and sometimes they get results, but rarely do they stay long enough for folks to remember their names three years later. Mm-hmm. Yet in that same space are teachers who have been a part of that community for decades. They don't just know the child, they know the family. Right. They know that they know the community. They have a vested interest in that place being better. And so they show up every day. Right. Every day. Sometimes violence happening in and around the school, knowing they won't have everything they need to be successful. Yet they know that every day families are entrusting them to do what they can for their kids. And so they're there. Right. And so for us, the fact that there are people who are already committed to that community being better that was three quarters of the work for us. That's right. Because <laughs> all you need to do then is unlock their change agency, right? Understand what's needed to empower them to be their best selves every day and put that in place, right? The best principles do this almost uh, automatically, right? Know what motivates people, know what empowers people, finds the resourcing, and, uh, and sometimes even you're going outside the bounds a bit to make sure that their that their people have what they need. Mm-hmm. And so when we when we do our work in schools, um, it is from this perspective that the teachers and leaders in that place are the only ones who can transform it. It's that simple. Yep. And I'll give you a great example why. Let's do a, a thought experiment. Let's say we're in a big school district. We have a really high performing elementary school and a really low performing elementary school right, in the same district, what would happen if we swapped the teaching staff? Mm. What do you think would happen? Would that low-performing school suddenly become high-performing? No. Why not? You just replaced them with a with a, a set of teachers from a very high-performing elementary school. Why, why wouldn't it happen? Because I think the teachers coming from that high-performing school don't have an understanding of what has led to that school not performing as well. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. In addition, often the populations are different. Mm -hmm. And even the populations aren't different. You're going from a school where the kids are ready to one where they're not. And if you've taught for a long time in a place where kids are ready, you kind of lose the juju to help understand how to manage with the kids who aren't ready. And I know this from my own experience as a teacher. Mm -hmm. I was brilliant for the kids who are just about on grade level and just a little above grade level. Mm-hmm. But I had about a third of my kids who were well below grade level and another third who knew more about English than I did, yep. right? And I had almost nothing for those two sectors of, of, uh, of my school community. I just didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I had students who could barely read. You know, I taught English. I was never taught how to teach kids to read. 
Right. I was a high school teacher. Yep. Um, yep. And so you know what I'm talking about, right? You've yep. been through this. And so when we when we restrict um, the diversity, at least intellectual, or academic, and the preparation diversity within classrooms, we're actually robbing teachers of the ability to learn how to serve a broader set of student needs, mm -hmm. right? Especially if you keep them there for long times, right? And so what will happen is those the teachers who are coming from the high-performing school won't stay. They'll be like, what? These behavior, da, da, da. it'll all be about blaming kids and blaming yep. families. Yep. And they'll want their way back to some other place and they'll they'll grieve until they get it. Yep. The teachers in a, in a high-performing place will be delighted, but they'll be similarly underprepared, right? Because they haven't actually prepared to work with kids who are so ready to go. Uh, they'll have a great experience uh, learning it. But it's, it's quite likely that the performance in, a, in both sets of schools would be impeded by that change. Right. Because of a lack of respect and appreciation for the communities and the contexts in which we're expecting folks to do that work. Yeah. And the fact that relationships matter. Think about the parents. Oh, my God. You have one set of teachers one year and another set the next year and nobody knows mm -hmm. anybody. I mean, mm -hmm. But we re understand we do this all the time. Right. Right. We close schools and, and and swap populations and move teachers around like they're, you know, um, uh, widgets on the widget on the board. And 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 they lose so much what makes them uniquely powerful for the community that they serve because they, they know not just the kids, but the families in the broader context, too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I have to quote another beloved person in my life, Rob Reardon, who was one of the founders of High Tech High. He would love the example you just gave. And he would often talk about how every choice that you make creates its own set of problems. Mm -hmm. And you just want to make the choice that gives you the problems you'd rather deal with. And so he would he would say that as a way of describing that's why at High Tech High, like from the beginning, we've never tracked we have mm -hmm. kids of all different <laughs> levels in mm -hmm. the same classroom learning together because we would rather have the problems that go with that of learning how to differentiate, learning how to create those multiple access points, learning how to push and grow kids wherever they might be in community with each other than the problems that you get when you separate out kids and separate <laughs> adults in that way. Right. right. So I feel like well, he would be like clapping that. Yes, but there's a but there's a there's a bigger purpose you're serving too, which we often don't talk about. One way of describing the story of education reform the last 50 years is a tension between two sets of values. Mm -hmm. The values that are about some kids and the values that are about all kids. Yep. Yeah. Our country has always known how to create a special place for some kids. In fact, public education started like that, right? It was this special environment for just the kids who were ready or the kids whose families were landed or whatever the, the, the criteria were. We've always known how to do that, right? What we've never known how to do is create systems for all kids. But every classroom that does what you described, that doesn't parcel out kids and doesn't, you know, have all these layers of, of preparation requirements for them to get there is a little microcosm mm. of what makes democracy brilliant which yeah. is you have everybody there, right. right? Regardless of, you know, what their parents make, regardless of how, how well they read, regardless of, you know, what, what it is they want to do for themselves. But everyone's there, right? And they're learning mm -hmm. together. They're in community together to try to figure this stuff out. Um, uh, and it's the doing of that. If we're able to do it in classrooms, then outside the classrooms, they're much more adaptively able to learn together with peers in different contexts from different communities, right? Mm -hmm. Our Achilles heel is that we segregate racially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we didn't do that, I think our, our democracy would be much stronger today yeah. than it is now. Yeah. But yeah, having everyone, every type of kid in a classroom is a brilliant way to create masterful teachers. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. When we last saw each other in person, we were talking about how do we do this work right now, really equity-centered work in the moment where even the mention of the word equity has become contentious. Mm -hmm. 
And you shared some brilliance with me in that moment that I've like told a few different people of, but I'd love to have you share about what have you learned about how to navigate this like tricky cultural moment we're in, where we're trying to do equity work and we can't even say the word equity. How do we do that work in places and kind of broaden the tent of folks who are on board to do it? If people have an issue with words, don't use those words. I mean, honestly, you know, uh, especially since it means different things to different people. One example I might have shared was a, an example in a conversation with with parents in San Francisco, where there's this kind of a challenging environment around a belief that equity and excellence are in, in conflict with each other, that we can't resource need and accelerate kids who are ready at the same time, that they have to, you know, it's a choice that the system is either to. or. Yeah, right. it's an either or uh, concept. And with this set of parents, I, you know, I asked them how many of them have ever gotten tutoring for their kids and a bunch of raised a hand and I asked them, what did you get tutoring for? Well, my daughter was having a problem with math. And so I got a math tutor. Anyone else get math tutors for their kids? A few of them raised their hands. And um, we were having this robust conversation. I'm like, well, how many of you who got tutors for, for your students have more than one child? Most of them did. And I said, did you get tutors for all of them? And they was like, no, they only got tutors for the kid that needed it. I'm like, well, you, you believe in equity. Because that's what equity is. Literally, it would be wasteful to get tutor for a student who's matching, you know, a content area. And so what you did was you got resources and you applied them to the place where there was a where there was need. That is equity. That's all the districts are trying to do. And it would surprise them because they had thought it was something else, that there was some other sort of political framing for this issue. But but it really isn't. It's about recognizing the fact that there are places like the ones I described, you know, in my story, where kids are coming in to schools that are under-resourced to meet their needs and fixing that in systemic ways so that they have what they need. Um, the tutors, if that's the problem, the the curriculum materials, if that's the problem, whatever the, whatever the issue, whatever the problem is. Um, and again, I still believe, you know, like in California, there should be a floor underneath no school in our country goes. It may surprise you that we have kids uh, in schools in this community, in this country that are just astounding. You would, you would think you're in another part of the world um, based upon the conditions that we're expecting kids to learn in. It's just disastrous. We have, we have schools where kids can't drink the water in, in several of our major cities. And all this says something about our value right. for our children, our belief in them, our willingness to, to solve problems you know, for them. So all of this is just to say, if you run into these headwinds, the political headwinds around doing social justice work, I keep two things in mind. One is use the language that works. And so in this case, tutoring sort of unlocked it for the set of parents. The second is keep the main thing, the main thing, yeah. right? So rather than any individuals, you know, tete-a-tete, uh, because -tete, people are going to have their I had a teacher who X, Y, Z, and one, two, three, and that's what every kid should have. And, you know, instead of getting into the into all of those arguments, mm -hmm. keep the main thing the main thing and recognize that not everyone's going to be on the same page with us about what it is we're trying to accomplish overall. Um, a lot of my work is fundraising. Mm -hmm. And I was at a fundraising call with a set of funders. And it was an interesting conversation because... After I pitched all our work and showed results and all those sorts of things, you got a lot of nods and some folks, you know, handed over checks. But one guy stuck around and he asked me after when no one else was there, Dr. Mitchell, this, this all sounds really good, but why should those kids have for free what I pay a lot of money to provide to my kids? And I thought, hmm, what do you mean? He's like, you're talking about providing kids with a high quality education. I get that. And it's great if we can resource it for everybody, but we really can't. So why should some kids get for free what I spend, you know, hard, a lot of money Oof. providing Oof. for my kid? And it, it was just a great reminder that not everybody's on board with yeah. this idea. And I get that. That's OK. You know, let's not try to convince them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, uh, and, and, you know, those of us in the progressive world, we don't plan for, for anyone to disagree with us. We just think that if we argue more persuasively and have more examples, you know, people are going to eventually come on to our side of, of thinking. But the truth of the matter is, 
There are people who want segregated schools. There are people who believe that some kids don't deserve quality education, right? Or worse, they should demonstrate they that they deserve it before they get it, as if that's mm-hmm. logical, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, and and in the presence of folks who simply disagree, don't don't try to convince them. Thank them for their for their thoughts, you know, and send them on their way. And they go find your crew. That's yeah. right. Retrench in your crew. <laughs> Use example to reignite your crew. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the book, you guys, this is a little bit of a bird walk, but one of the concepts that you talk about that really resonated with our team was just this idea of like, you're not going to get everybody on your side in any kind of change effort, but you can do what you can to create a warm pool so that they want to jump in. If you're coming forward with what you guys call cold pool energy, that's not going to make people want to join. So what's the, what are the tricks do you think for creating warm pool energy and getting folks? Yeah. One one of them I mentioned already food. Yeah. Right. Food is a shorthand (laughs) for, we believe in you. We care about you. Let's spend some time together. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting. Another is, is, is the idea of listening more than you'd speak. Mm-hmm. We train our folks uh, when they're deployed on the ground in school sites, the first couple months, they're there getting in community with each other, with folks. They ask the principal, what can I do to lighten your load today? Mm-hmm. Right? That's and they do question. everything from, you know, Xeroxing, fixing internet wiring. I mean, literally anything a, the principal needs at that moment, you know, they will do. But it's a way of showing that nothing is beneath us. We're part of the community and part of the team. And what's important for us is for you to have strategic time. And so if I can take some tactics away, <laughs> mm-hmm. you'd have strategic time, that's important. And so, you know, having rolling up the sleeves and helping, right? Before too long, you know, after doing that a little ways, uh, you know, you can say something to the principal like, hey, principal, you you have a, an ELT coming up on Tuesday. Uh, what's the agenda for that meeting? And there you go. Because mm-hmm. the principal most often would be like, you know what? I haven't thought about that. Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Can I can I give you a draft? What what should be the main goals? I mean, literally, reform starts just like that, right? Mm-hmm. Before you know it, they're the confidant, the the chief of staff, the you know the sort of uh, glue to create coherence in a system that hasn't been very coherent. And coherence is a prerequisite to to robust, sustainable results. Yeah, yeah. I have to ask you about. Because this is this is a grapple that we were kind of talking about a little bit in that in that workshop. Like after you've done this work, you've gotten really embedded, you've gotten people on board, they're creating amazing things. How do you know when it's time to step away? Mm. Or when you shouldn't, or I think there's this real tension for those of us working in schools of like, we want to build up the sustainability and the capacity of folks to do the work without us. And yet at the same time, there's also this thing, well, everybody deserves a great coach. Right. And why not the schools who need it most? So there's like, how do you make sense of that? How do you navigate that? We we talk about the difference between capacity and dependence, Mm. right? Building capacity or building dependence. Mm Mm-hmm. And one framework that a lot of folks use that some of my people have, have adopted too is the I do, we do, you do mental model. And typically the we do is the longest of the periods because they not only have to understand a tactic and a tool and a process and the thinking behind it, but how it actually plays out in different situations, right? And so you have to be with them during that time, doing a reflection to make it uh, you know sticky for adults. Adults have a hard time retaining without reflection. Mm-hmm. And so the we do is the longest of the periods. And it's easier to tell when capacity is not in place than to tell when it is. Yeah, yeah. Because we have leaders and systems that we haven't worked in in 10 years who are still reaching out to my people for support and help. Right, because they are the thought partners and they are the collaborators. And so mm-hmm. a lot of times my folks are like, you know, you know how to do this. You have someone, is so-and-so still there? What, you know, what, why aren't they helping you with this? Um, you know, but it also, it speaks to the to the fact that we build the kind of uh, relationships that make the work personally and professionally meaningful. There are often instances when, when leaders we've worked with have gone from one place to another. And so they no longer have a crew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they reach back out 
Mm-hmm. They're like, can you come and scaffold a crew? We're like, mm-hmm. well, you know, one of the reasons why we wrote the book is because, you know, we wanted to make sure that there was guidance for how to do this work without the need for, you know, a rich uncle like Brother Bill to resource us to do it for you. Mm-hmm. So the book is a democratizing tool mm-hmm. that takes the 30 years of partners knowledge and puts it out in the context so that anyone, you know, with 29 bucks can actually figure out how to do some of this work themselves. But certainly there's a tension between, you know, building capacity and building dependency. And there's some natural off ramps that are typically resource related that says, hey, you know, you, you've got uh, only this much amount of time of this support before we can't be here anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so wouldn't it be better if not I did this, but, you know, you work with so-and-so and your staff to to get this piece done? We're literally going through this now uh, uh, with the with the ending of our gates and SIs. Mm-hmm. We're raising the question of whether we've built enough capacity and yeah. um, and we're looking at the at the request for support to see how those have changed over time. Mm-hmm. And we're we're not pushing back, but it, but at least reflecting back, you know, to the teachers and leaders we're working with when there's something that they're asking for that they can take on themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. There's not to be underestimated the value of another pair of hands in these yeah. places that are so severely under-resourced. And so that's what, that's a lot of what we provide, another set of hands, hands that don't have a classroom, right? So so you're like, really, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you actually really have like, yeah, highly viable hands that can do some serious work. <laughs> highly available, a, highly viable, right? Yeah. So that's yeah. not to be underestimated, but yet at the same time, there, there are dozens of folks in that place who yeah. by the time we're there three years or so should be so on board and so aligned with where the school is trying to go that if you, you know, tap them to take on some of these tactics and some of these tools, they should be excited about the opportunity. Yeah. I love the point you made too about the book serving this democratizing function because you really can't, I mean, when we read it, I literally was like, this is like a blueprint for how to actually do improvement in a very like change oriented transformational way. Like, and if you're a a teacher or a principal or a superintendent or a coach, it's written for you. And Mm -hmm. even the tone is so like conversational and it was a joy to read. Well, part part of all of that was intentional. Yeah. And Justin owns a lot of the, the benefit of that just by, I mean, he's a journalist at heart. And so, you know, communicating more broadly to, to everybody which yeah. is, is sort of a, a value of his. But when we were, when I first hired at, at Partners, it was a goal that the board had for there to be a book about our work. And part of that was because a report had come out about the value of the work that we had done in partnership with another organization in San Jose. And we weren't mentioned at all in it. And the board's like, what? We were the most critical piece and nobody talks about (laughs) So we wrote a book way back then. I think 2014 was when, 2015 was when the the book was written. And it was encyclopedic. um, And it was something I couldn't even get staff to read. (laughs) (laughs) First Um, test. (laughs) Yes. And so we kind of set it aside. I mean, it had everything that you know needed, which is part of the problem, of course. Right, right. And this this effort, we really asked two critical questions. So first is, what are the books we ourselves rely on, and what do they have in common? Mm-hmm. So I had my leadership team and a few of my staff members on the project bring the five or six books that are the most you know, compelling books for them. And it was things like Savage Inequities and Teach Like a Champion. And I mean, just, you know, the typical, you know, even Tony's book mm-hmm. had made it into that group. And we categorized them and there were basically five categories of books. There was the brilliant admirers of the problems books, which Savage Inequities is a good example of that. Yeah. Um, so just well-written, poignant and powerful, um, but it leaves you devastated. Because, I mean, you read it yeah. and you go, oh my God, yeah. yes. how could yeah. we do this to people? <laughs> you know, because right. uh, there's no solutions, you know, in there. So we want it to be as poignant and as powerful as uh, Savage Inequities, but we want it to be solutions focused. Mm-hmm. We want it to be uplifting mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, demoralizing. Then there were the second set of books were the, were the sort of education books for non-educators. 
right? Uh, tricks of the trade kind of those. Seats like a champion falls into that category. And they are tactically powerful because you read them today and you can change your practice tomorrow mm-hmm. kinds of things, which you think was really important. But the tone and frame felt in some ways kind of demeaning a professional practice, right? And so we wanted to be as tactically useful, but to be deeply respectful mm-hmm. of professional practice and leverage the voices of the folks who are in the work you know, trying to do this work. There were the research tomes, right? Um, that, you know, had 19 references for every utterance. <laughs> and our, our original book would have fallen into that category. Uh, but it's important that we know we're not experimenting on, on these kids, that there's a research base and then we know how to help. And so we wanted the, the book to have the resource base embedded within it, but not be so dry and so challenging to kind of for your regular reader to make their way through, which is uh, a key part. Then there's books like Tony's, which is really the reform books. We read a a, a bunch of those and they basically produce a blueprint, but in some cases divorced from the act of community practice, right? So you follow these steps and magic is supposed to happen, but you know, the connective tissue between people mm-hmm. and process and teams and you know the murky the sausage making, you know, is invisible uh to yeah. it. And so we wanted that that blue pretty you know, sort of framing, but we really wanted the sausage making, yeah. right? The really valuable interactions um between well-meaning, disagreeing people. Mm-hmm. That is yeah. often the truth, you know, yes. in, in this reform frame. Yeah, yeah. And so we hope, you know, just hearing your questions and your your reflections on it, it seems like we uh, struck the right balance. You nailed it. Okay, Derek, I have one last question before the final word. I feel like I've been in lots of rooms with you at this point, mostly virtual, unfortunately, but when I get the in-person ones, I'm so happy. And I've really appreciated that you are so clearly committed to building the field of improvement in education. Like whenever mm-hmm. I'm in a room with you, you're never just promoting your own your own organization's work. You're always mm-hmm. speaking in very broad terms about like what we as a field need to do um, to move forward. And I just love to know like, why are you invested in the field of improvement? And like, what are your hopes for that field well, as we grow? Um, a big part of the reason why improvement, particularly the field of improvers um, is important is that it's an, it's an investment in producing outcomes that if we don't get serious about how to embed it into the existing set of systems and structures, it'll be another dead body along the side of the road of schools getting better, right? And there are tons of those already, we, you know, <laughs> we, can, we can list them. And I think there's a critical role improvers and improvement science itself can play and the execution of any reform. Mm -hmm. Why isn't it the mechanism through which we do any broad-based instructional strategy, whether it's deploying new curricula or or new assessments or or teaching content? um, The improvement methodology is the mechanism by which you deepen and broaden understanding while you build agency in learning and you create the structures by which communities learn forward together. Mm-hmm. Right. So the content independent, it's, right. it's essentially the delivery system uh, and a powerful delivery system of of, uh, of any structure that can produce outcomes. And so I feel like it's the most promising thing that has come out of the field in a very, very long time. And if we don't get serious about how to uh, deepen and broaden and un- this understanding so that it's part of what teachers are taught and leaders are taught and systems expect, you know, it'll it'll be another example like the computer. <laughs> Everybody feels like it's going to, you know, AI is the latest thing, you know, that everyone feels like it's going to revolutionize. I mean, in my brief life, it's, there's been you know, like one of those every six or seven years um, and nothing seems to really change. Uh, with this methodology, it could change it all. It's the thing that could make all the other pieces that have promise deliver on what they promise. So I'm going to keep plugging away at it and keep pushing my peers to get serious about it because I think it's really the the main asset that we can produce beyond the work we do with our individual districts and schools. Mm-hmm. I'm on board. You've convinced me. Awesome. 
<laughs> Do you have any final thoughts or words of advice? Ah, uh, what I'm thinking about now, because yeah. I'm on, a, on, on, I'm also on the board of an organization called the California Academy of Sciences. If you haven't actually visited this place, I highly recommend it. Um, it's in the San Francisco. It's this incredible facility that uh, has a rainforest, uh, uh, an aquarium, a natural history museum, and a planetarium all in, under the same roof. Mm-hmm. But more important than that, the board has about, I think the last count is six Nobel Prize winning scientists on the board. And it has a mission to help regenerate the natural world. And so part of what I'm thinking about now in terms of the role education needs to play is that nature has been trying to signal to all of us its distress. I mean, we've had fires and floods sometimes in the same spot, you know, in the same week. Mm-hmm. Very biblical types of, uh, of disasters, which I think is nature's way of saying, you know, what you're talking about, Willis. Yeah. But for me, because, you know, this is one of many large problems that we are bequeathing to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, racism being another, and you know, just this goes on and on. I'm thinking about what our what role should our schools be playing in preparing the the next generation of kids to solve problems that we're leaving them with. Mm-hmm. And one question that I'm that I'm sitting with is this question of regeneration and regeneration science, shifting from a mental model that we all have now around uh, conservation, which we did not have 20 years ago, if you remember. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, you know, we have we have uh, uh, automobile companies, you know, <laughs> commercials talking about conservation. It's an, it's a, it's an incredible thing uh, in just 20 years for that kind of thing to happen. But the problem is we can't conserve our way into a, a healthy planet anymore. We have to regenerate the natural world. And that means rewilding key parts of the world that we've you know essentially killed mm-hmm. you know by by inhabiting them in, as humans and so i've been thinking about schools and the role the kind of young people we are going to need who are going to be willing to tackle those kinds of big problems um, and how do we help them how do we build them how do we train them how do we we uh, and it starts with the with you know owning the shift from regeneration from conservation to regeneration, and then um, helping them recognize the limitations and the solutions that we've attempted, right? And and being open to the kind of already crazy you know uh, broad based thinking that they have about the world, mm-hmm. because you know we haven't solved these problems. Um, and they're not going to find solutions running along the same trails that we've run along. Um, and so we need to produce young people who are more resilient, more in community, better stewards of air, sea, land uh, than we have been. And I'm worried that we're not producing those young people. Yeah, I'm worried that we're we're instead creating a much more fragile, much less motivated group of young people and we got to do something about that. Can I yes and that really mm-hmm. briefly? Sure. The the picture that you're painting for students of or young people of being able to like regenerate and explore deep questions and address problems that we essentially bequeath to them. I want that for teachers too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just, I think a big part of our, our ability to do that for children is going to be our ability and willingness to do to support that in the adults teaching them because it's really hard to teach in a way you have not experienced. Absolutely. And there's this this opportunity for really beautiful symmetry to have young adults and adults working alongside each other to do that work and exploring. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a dream. So, so that's where my brain is these days, and, and I'm looking at. Uh, at organizations that are working hard at helping uh, schools take the work of the environment more serious. And as you know, from, from my own experience with the cockroaches, the, you know, you can, you can really excite kids with science. Yeah. Just by driving their own inquiries, right? Whatever it is they're excited about or interested in. And, you know, how can we then build teachers capacity to uh, produce a mindset shift in young people that will make new kinds of solutions more readily uh, uh, applicable and available to them. 
than they have been to us. That's where my brain is these days. But you didn't think that's where I'd go, huh? I didn't, but I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, Derek, thank you so, so much. This has been a joy to be able to spend this time with you. You're so welcome, Stacey. It's so great to see you as always. Thank you for everything. Uh, This has been fun. It's always fun to chill with you. (laughs) Thanks. High Tech High Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Huge thanks to Derek and Stacy for this conversation. You can find links to the book Change Agents, as well as lots of resources about school improvement in the show notes. Thanks for listening.